Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Imagine working at the White House. Well, I mean, two yes. of us probably can't imagine working <laughs> at the White House, <laughs> right? I can't. In fact, I can't. In fact, imagine it very clearly, <laughs> right? Or, or working on Capitol Hill. Uh, I again cannot cannot imagine that. But thanks to an Instagram account called Dear White Staffers and the voices of many congressional staffers who are taking the opportunity to share their own stories. Many of us can now get an idea of what it might be like. And the picture is not pretty. It's actually so bad that congressional staffers are talking about forming a union. So this week, we're taking some time to break down what's happening on the Hill and explore what unions have meant for workers in America. So I think we should start with some background. Who are these staffers that we're talking about? All right. I see your question and I raise you another question. How many people actually work in Congress? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) That's why that wasn't some guesses here. You just you've had that ready. You've had that one. ready. Uh, I've been sitting on that (laughs) since I saw that this tee up in the script. Yes. Yes, I have been. (laughs) So (laughs) the joys of reading ahead. All right. So we're not just talking about um, the Congress members. So, okay. Gosh. Um, before I saw the number, I did not think it was near as many as it no. is. I thought it was on the order of like several hundred or right. maybe even a couple thousand. Yeah. I was like, okay, if you go three or four to one, you're looking at maybe 1,500, 2,000. Yeah. Well, the answer to that question is right around 14,000. Between the House of Representatives and the Senate, including personal staff, office staff, committee staff, there's about 14,000 non-elected people working as staff in Congress. Then you've got people who work in the White House. And then we and other news outlets talk about staffers. And this is who we're referring to. These folks fill a lot of functional roles that basically allow our government to function on a daily basis. Right. So you've got chiefs of staff, administrative assistants. They ensure that each congressperson's office is fully functional, uh, making sure that everyday operations are covered. Legislative staff do the work of previewing and reviewing new legislation as it comes in and actually making the initial recommendations and raising concerns. 
Uh, there's the communication staff. They're responsible for representing the congressperson to the media, updating websites, writing press releases, announcing sponsored legislation, uh, doing snarky Twitter comments, and getting into <laughs> flame wars. Schedulers and personal secretaries manage the congressperson's time directly, making their appointments and making travel arrangements. And then there's caseworkers. They work in the congressperson's home district to help resolve constituent issues that need attention from federal agencies. They help prepare those helpful little form letters um, that the congressperson just kind of puts their signature on and then it goes out to everybody and it makes you feel like, ah, my congressperson cares about me. And that's not even half of the roles that these staffers fill. There's so many more across the Senate and in the White House and even in the Supreme Court. And these staffers are a pretty diverse group, too. About 23% of House of Representatives staffers are not white. And though they range in age from 21 to 79, oh, Jesus, can we retire? Most staffers range from 21 to 39 years old. And there's about a 52-48 split on gender with women having a slight edge. And most of the nation's most prominent religions are represented. The non-elected folks that keep Congress and the White House and these other institutions running have a lot of hard work to do. They're under immense pressure, often moving at a breakneck pace to make sure that our elected and appointed officials can go about the business of government. The stress of environments like these can really take a toll on everyone involved. And to make matters worse, we're starting to hear from staffers who say they've been mistreated, humiliated, and subject to hostile working conditions. Dr. Eric Lander, who is the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, and science advisor to the White House under President Biden, and that's a low-key, low-stress position uh, during the times of COVID. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's totally. Probably a constant vacation, really. <laughs> yeah. He resigned on February 7th after an internal investigation found that he had mistreated his staff. The investigation began after a staffer named Rachel Wallace brought a complaint to the White House Director of Management and Administrator for Personnel, which is just a long phrase for, you know, HR. Um, and she expressed concerns about how Lander was treating her. The investigation revealed 14 workers, at least, in the OSTP who say they experienced the same ridicule, yelling, public embarrassment, and shaming. It sounds like a normal day in the Marine Corps. So, uh. Which, yeah, really trying to decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I remember when this happened or when this news came out a few, I guess, several weeks ago now. Um, there, It was juxtaposed with the uh, pronouncement from Biden during his campaign that was like, hey, if there's any like abuse or um you know, mistreatment of staff in, in my White House administration, we're just going to get rid of the person who was being abusive. And mm -hmm. that's not what and happened here. It's not exactly what happened. He he kind of stepped down after the investigation, but it wasn't like a, a tripwire event where they were like, oh, he's abusive. See ya. Um, so it was frustrating. Well, they were leaning, they were leaning on the fact that there wasn't a way that White House staffers could bring up concerns and there wasn't yeah. a policy in place to react to it officially, mm -hmm. which seems like a cop out. Like, I understand that policies and procedures need to be written, but you can set the precedence once you hear of abuse to get them out the door. 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's my understanding that that's kind of what they were looking to do in this case. They had said, okay, so here's how we're going to proceed going forward and check-ins and reviews and monitoring and all that stuff. And it sounded like he was just like, eh, peace out. I'm not doing all that. Yeah. And yeah. he's been silent on Twitter since um, like the 1st of February. Wow. Which probably just means a staffer um, was running his Twitter account. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably, let's be honest. Um, which, and it does make me wonder if this position is a, uh, political appointment. Um, and if so, mm -hmm. do political appointments have the same sort of protections against firing that the normal federal hire does? I'm not sure on that. We haven't checked into it, but I know that like, it is very difficult to fire a federal employee, um, for, for many reasons. A lot of it Speaking as they, a federal uh, employee who works with yeah. federal employees who sometimes I would like to get fired. Yes, no, it's really difficult to get them out the door. And I don't even care if they hear that. I hope they resign. <laughs> Damn. Get them. Get them. No, I so. think that's right. Um, it, and it can be frustrating uh, to, to try to cut the, shall we say, not cream of the crop. What's the opposite of the cream of the crop? The chaff of the, the crop? The chaff, yeah. Ew. The dross. Uh, yeah. Dross. Dross. The dross of the crop. I expect the um, Midwestern people to know that answer. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> chaff and dross. That's very much <laughs> a, related to it. Wow. Um, yeah. It's, uh, anytime I hear stories about government inefficiency, we're off track but anytime i hear stories about government inefficiencies or you know just these royal screw-ups on behalf of government employees i remember how very difficult it is to get rid of the people who are going to do those things and it is almost guaranteed that that person's management whoever's in the story knew that this person was going to screw up um, and just couldn't do anything about it without opening themselves up to a lawsuit. They just mm -hmm. get shuffled around. They get moved yeah. to another section, another thing, and just poison that from the inside. It's awful. Yeah, I've seen them promote up to get them out of a department, and they just yep. put them in their own management position um, and then perpetuate the cycle in a real bad way because yeah. then now they have some modicum of power. Oof. Oof. We could talk about that um, as an episode, federal employment, oh yeah. just in general. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of misperceptions and misconceptions about how federal employment works. Um, my mom was a federal employee for 30 years and people hated her for it because they thought that she was like making tons of money as a federal employee. Oh, I make so much um, less than I would as a contractor easily. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I know it for sure. Speaking as a contractor, it's the number one, <laughs> it's the number one, like, <laughs> it's the number one attack I get all of the time, actually, at work. People tell me that I'm not, ob I'm obviously only in it for the money. I'm not dedicated, like, to the mission. And I'm like, uh, I just like paying my bills and being dedicated to the mission. You can't right? live in D.C. for, you know, lowly yeah. federal employment. You, you know what they started me at in the Secret Service? $56,000 in D.C.? Oh. Mm -hmm. That yeah, just brutal. does not sound right. Yeah. No wonder you have an awesome roommate. They made up for it, though, uh, because they also made me work 20 hours of overtime every week minimum. So, <laughs> you know, I did have a lot of money, and 
couldn't spend any of it because I was always at work. But that was obviously not a healthy operational environment. All right. Um, let's get back to the... But bringing it back, yeah, bringing it back on. <laughs> Most of the conversation right now that the spotlight is on congressional staffers and especially their intent to unionize. And that brings us to the Instagram account, Dear White Staffers. Right. The Instagram account started in January of 2020, although I just discovered it like two weeks ago. Um, and it, initially they only shared memes that highlighted like the differences in treatment that minority staffers might experience or called out the, the harsh working conditions sometimes on the Hill. But more recently, the account has begun sharing testimonials from current and former aides and staff that tell a troubling story of what it's like to work on the Hill. And as more and more workers either share their stories or see themselves reflected in the stories of others, the account has grown exponentially. They gained 70,000 followers in two weeks. A photo of Martha Stewart at the Super Bowl seemed to show their account filling her phone screen as she posed for a picture with Guy Fieri. Uh, news, news outlets are scrambling to get interviews and to cover this account that mostly shows up on condition of anonymity in these interviews, which is really yeah. interesting. It is an interesting account. Um, and it seems like they hit that tipping point, like critical mass, where yeah. you have enough people following you and enough people talking about it that it sort of feeds itself. Um, and that's not surprising because the account itself shares firsthand accounts from staffers of their time working for Congress people and committees. And it's often accompanied by, like you said, that, uh, that request for anonymity in internet parlance it's usually a non-please or more like a non-plus is that not pronounced uh, non-plus is that not, am i messing up words here no that's different no that's a different <laughs> <Okay>. thing <laughs> please take um, that one out um no 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 it's staying in yeah we show all our warts around here i'm good that's definitely not true we delete many many all warts, of our warts. So you we the listener don't have warts. to deal with any of them Anyway, so these requests, they're often, re, uh, these, these stories, they're often accompanied by this request for anonymity um, because the stories they tell could cost these people their jobs. Some of the tales they relay are truly horrific. In the wake of everything that's been happening over the past several years, they're downright cosmic cruelty, really. We're going to share some of them here so you get an idea of what issues these workers are trying to combat through organization and unionization. Um, but we want you to keep a few things in mind. First, they're written as informal testimonies, and they therefore often use jargon and abbreviations that aren't immediately clear to people on the outside. So we've tried to clarify those where we can, uh, which means these aren't a 100% accurate retyping and reading of what the comments are um they've been edited for clarity and second um and more seriously these are first-hand accounts of verbal and emotional abuse there are discussions about mental health mental health struggles so if that is something that isn't for you skip ahead a couple of minutes and we will bring it back around to the uh the actual meat of the discussion so the first write-in i think savannah will take this to that we have for dear white staffers is 
I lasted less than a year because I was so stressed that I developed ulcers. My hair fell out and I broke out into hives. The member of Congress I worked for was incredibly emotionally abusive and passive-aggressive towards his senior staff, and the stress the senior staff endured would result in the trauma getting passed down to the lesser staff, which didn't help and honestly hastened my exit. At the time, he would sleep in the office because he refused to rent an apartment. His staff assistant and schedulers basically became maids, making sure his office was clean and dusting off footprints in his sofa bed. My most horrifying memory was that he had apparently walk around in the legislative office at night and look at our desks, which we knew because he would make notes in his nightly binder specifically about the fact that my desk was messy. And then another wrote, I lived in Section 8 housing all three years of working on the Hill for the same member had packages stolen weekly, car broken into countless times, and was violently mugged outside my apartment building. I was a driver for my office, and every day I didn't finish driving until 10 to 11 p.m. Sometimes I'd have to drive back to the Capitol to take the bus home at 1 a.m., even though she lived two blocks away, because she refused to Uber or walk. After the assault, I got approval to only drive until 8 p.m., but considering I almost always had to pick her up before 9 a.m., my days would still be crazy long, for around $35,000 a year. And these accounts don't shy away from naming congressional or congresspeople directly. So the final one we're going to share here, and this is just these are just three samples of literally thousands of stories that they have put up. It says, I'm truly shocked that I'm not seeing more about Debbie Wasserman Schultz's office. I worked for her office briefly, and the culture is extremely toxic. The scheduler would blame the interns when she, the scheduler, messed up. As someone who was an unpaid intern at first on the Hill, that was my last straw. My mental health completely plummeted while working there with all the constant yelling and bad energy in the office every time the congresswoman was in D.C. How staffers talked to one another was extremely toxic, and it was definitely a reflection of how the congresswoman talks to her staffers. I remember one event I went to, the senior staffers told me I had to memorize everyone going to that event, and if I didn't know who it was, my job was at stake. That was my second week there. When I finally left the office, everyone I spoke to told me how terrible they heard her office was, so clearly there was a known reputation. Dear white staffers has called out everything from the use of unpaid labor to get ahead, to the handling of COVID policies, to the lack of respect for personal space and property. The account routinely asks for input on polls from staffers as well, although this isn't objectively reliable data because anybody can vote and submit concerns with no verification of actually having worked on the Hill. However, this kind of open source format allows for employees to have a voice about their concerns and gives them a platform for possible next steps for congressional staffers, which in this case is unionization. Now, we haven't talked about unionization really at all on the show. We know that it's a polarizing topic, especially in an economy like this one, and we really do want to discuss the subject in more depth at some point. The primary goal of this podcast is to use research to discover the truth in talking points about these controversial topics. This is an area where a significant amount of work has already been done, and we're confident that there's plenty of common ground to be had in that data. But this is a From the Headlines episode, so for today, we're going to stick with a high-level look at the controversy over unions and how unionization has been used as an advocacy tool in situations where workers feel like they've been taken advantage of. It seems like I hear the term union 
get thrown around all the time, either to sneers or cheers, depending <laughs> on the crowd. Um, but I'm not sure anyone has ever taken the time to explain to me what a union really is, which I know what a union is now, but I think it just sort of, I just sort of like absorbed the general idea through osmosis. Um, so the quick and dirty definition of, of a union is that a union is an organized group of workers who unite to make decisions about conditions affecting their work. If we step away from that dictionary definition and start talking about what that actually means, a union is really a group of workers fighting to have their wants and needs heard by the forces that guide industry practices. It's one thing if a single person says, wait a minute, this isn't fair, this isn't right or good or just. Company X, you have to change this or I'm not going to work. Because Company X isn't going to do anything if it's just one person, they'll probably fire that person and hire somebody else. But when you get a huge chunk of the labor force deciding they want a policy or practice changed or else, well, it's a lot harder to keep making widgets if half the widget makers don't show up to do it. Any company that likes to make money and keep operating, which is all of them, uh, will be forced to do something to bring those employees back. Unions are a direct application of the principles of democracy, but on an industrial instead of national scale. They function in the same way as the U.S. government is designed to function. Members hold election for officers uh, who then make decisions on behalf of the members, which give the workers more power. Today, there are more than 60 unions representing more than 14 million workers throughout the country. Unfortunately, the reason these unions exist isn't exactly great. Uh, people don't tend to band together to exert their power because, you know, why not? Throughout history and into the modern day, low-level workers have been, well, fucked. Perhaps you've heard some of the stories behind the horrific working condi conditions that existed prior to the campaigns and progress made by unions. One of the most famous ones uh, is the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. For example, I, I actually learned about this in middle school. That's how important this story is. Um, in 1911, a fire erupted on the top floors of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Firefighters responded, but the building was taller than their ladders, so they couldn't reach the flames on the 10th story. The factory workers had been trapped inside, not because of the flames or the panic caused, you know, trying to escape, but because the owners had locked the fire escape exit doors. Now, the fire burnt out after about half an hour. But of the 500 employees that worked there, 146 had died, either from the flames or due to jumping from the 10th floor to escape them. And as horrible as that fire was, it was only the final blow in a litany of wrongs that had been done to these factory workers. Some of the shirtwaist makers were only 15. They worked 13 hours a day, 7 days a week, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., with a half-hour lunch break. For the numerically inclined among us, that's 91 hours a week at the factory. And only three and a half of those 91 hours were a break, and that was for lunch. 
And for all of that labor, they were paid about $6 per week, which in 2022 money is $178 per week. 91 hours of labor, $178. In some cases, they were required to supply their own needles, thread, irons, and sometimes even their own sewing machines. One of the workers described the condition saying, unsanitary, that's the word that is generally used, but there ought to be a worse one used. Women had to leave the building to use the bathroom, which is why management began locking those steel fire escape doors. They wanted to prevent the, quote, interruption of work. And only the foreman had the key. Heaven forbid interrupting the capitalist dream because of something as minuscule as basic human needs. You can find the rest of that story in our sources. There's, there's way more to it, actually. Uh, it's too much to tell here in this episode. Honestly, we could easily dedicate a whole episode to it, if not a whole series. Um, what matters is that three months after the fire, after pressure from activists and unions, New York's governor created the Factory Investigating Commission. The commission investigated nearly 2,000 factories in multiple industries and with the help of workers' rights advocates, enacted eight laws covering fire safety, factory inspections, and sanitation, and employment rules for women and children. Now, it, such a commission with that level of power was unprecedented. It did not exist prior to this. A year later, they pushed for 25 more laws, rewriting New York State's labor laws and creating a State Department of Labor to enforce those laws. Two of the chairs of the Factory Investigation Commission went on to help create the nation's most sweeping worker protections through a little something called the New Deal. You may have heard of it. And those people, those two, helped set up the National Labor Relations Act, which is so critical for worker protections even today. Um, slight note that we can also remove. Um, I saw something that said if Minecraft has shown us anything, it's that the children yearn for the mines. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know. I mean, if if my house is any anything to judge by, the children yearn for the mushrooms. It's it's mushrooms. not the mines, it's the spotted cows. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something a little different between being forced to do it for 100 hours a week and getting to build cool lava traps that you trap your enemies in and burn them to death and steal all their supplies. I'm just guessing. Right. These stories didn't end in 1911 or 1970 or 2022. Since the pandemic struck, stories about the working conditions of various industries have flooded social media and news media alike. Perhaps the most high-profile stories are those involving Amazon. Between 2017 and 2020, the company reported serious injuries which required workers to take time off or be moved into lighter tasks occurred at nearly double the rate of other warehouses in the industry, probably because they were trying to push out a lot more stuff to support America. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, that was a huge underlying factor listed in, in the stories. Mm -hmm. They also uh, massively grew their worker population and during the pandemic, by, by the order of several hundreds of thousands more workers for Amazon. Accounts on social media from supposed Amazon warehouse workers shared some insight as well. 
Keep in mind that these stories can't be confirmed. We're taking them on good faith, but that may be misguided. One worker wrote of her experience saying, Amazon wants you to pick 350 items an hour at a rate of seven seconds or less, or you get written up. God forbid you have to stop and take a water break and the rate that you pick items goes over seven. You're now in fear of losing your job. Someone will come and talk to you or send a message to your screen letting you know that you're picking above seven seconds. If this happens often, you'll be terminated. So you have to debate whether you want to drink water, use the bathroom, simply rest a minute, or be fired. When I found out I was pregnant, I had to ask my doctor to write an accommodation just so I would be able to use the bathroom without being written up and possibly have a miscarriage because of the workload. Amazon denied my doctor's orders. Jesus. Conditions at Amazon warehouses are so severe, a group of more than 200 public health experts sent a letter to Amazon in November of 2021, calling on the company to improve its workplace conditions. Um, I'm sure we all heard that people were peeing in bottles to prevent them from walking to the bathroom. A slight note about some of my workplace conditions and urination policies. (laughs) Um, I have worked around the federal government and the military for 14 years now, and there have been multiple places where I had to walk about a quarter mile to go to a bathroom, which is a lot. Um, And actually, I was diagnosed as part of my VA claim as having interstitial cystitis, which is a a chronic condition that was exacerbated by the fact that I couldn't go to the bathroom as soon as I needed to um, working in the military. And that is, it can be a very debilitating condition. But like, for example, in Afghanistan, had to walk a quarter mile to the bathrooms. And I gave up after a certain point, I just started peeing outside. Because uh, it was just too much. I mean, uh, women especially, uh, not to mention when we have uh, our periods, it gets gets difficult and we have to pee a lot and women get UTIs often. But anyway, there was that. And then um, also because I was a woman, they didn't have bathrooms nearly as uh, populous as the male restrooms. So um, the conditions around bathrooms and having access to them uh, was always difficult so can't imagine literally can't imagine i mean i have been blessed i guess by the universal lottery that uh using the bathroom has never been like something that i've had to think about right i've never had to be like okay where are the bathrooms how do i get there how far is it yeah but i totally for i i I, as somebody who has worked around the government now for several years myself i 100% see those conditions being not only like true, obviously, but nobody seeing what was wrong with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, also who was going to tell them and were they going to listen, which, um, exactly comes back to unions. Like even if somebody, even if somebody brought it up, it would be, you know, the, the logic would be, well, there are, you know, 10% of the military force out here are female. Why do we need more restrooms than than we currently have because there's not as many of them they can just use the few that we've got and the world is planned around the average experience Mm -hmm. of the people who were in power when they made the plans which sounds like a lot but imagine like it, it comes down to little things like average counter height 
Oh, yep. is based most likely on a man. I have to yep. interject this book that I think everyone should read 100%. It's called Invisible Women. Um, and it's, I'm pretty sure that's what it is, but it's about um, data analysis that has been done uh, for hundreds of years about how women are missing in studies about everything, even city planning, about the needs of women. Um, city planning is not done to uh, benefit women at all. Neither are medicines, neither are seatbelts. Like it is a fascinating book about how all of this data and all the studies and like John said, like the counter heights, like they didn't include women in any of these studies. And so our needs are completely overlooked for all of this stuff, which is a huge data bias. Um, you know, you're missing everything. So yeah. everything yeah. for women. I mean, yeah, it's it's the kind of bias that's like so big and we've been operating inside of it for so long that the fact that somebody even thought to look for the bias yeah, is incredible. That's a big deal. Because it's 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 almost like the sandbox that bounds everything else that happens in society is like, this is what's normal. And we never stop to think about why. It's called yeah. Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Carolyn Creato Perez. So I highly advise it was mind blowing. And I was like, wow, we uh, we have been failing half of our population. So I mean, yeah. as somebody who find a link for that has to stand on my tiptoes to check out at the average store to be able to see the actual credit card reader, I um, I can vouch for that. Dang, Robin, how short are you? I'm five <laughs> foot nothing. Itty bitty. Are you five foot tall? Mm -hmm. Oh, OK. I was like, I don't even have to do that. <laughs> I am small. <laughs> Amazon workers are leading the charge in a modern day labor renaissance. They're joined by Starbucks baristas in 20 states who have made it clear that their intention is to join the Workers United Union. Tech workers at the New York Times are fighting to join the union that represents other newspaper employees. And staffers on Capitol Hill are using the recent spotlight on their working conditions to advance their cause. The newly conceptualized Congressional Workers Union has officially announced its campaign to organize workers in Congress. The organizers say that plans have been in the works for more than a year, but that the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol changed the pace of their plans. Talking to a writer for their website, Roll Call, one of the organizers said, What happened on January 6 was, for a lot of folks, the straw that broke the camel's back. The question of people just not feeling safe has been a huge part of it. Their efforts have gained significant momentum recently, as we mentioned with the massive explosion in popularity of the Dear White Staffers account. This is also reflected in things like Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Schumer expressing their support for staff unions. Representative Andy Levin and more than 140 co-sponsors introduced a resolution on February 9th explicitly granting congressional aides the right to organize and bargain collectively. Now, the CWU is just waiting for the House Administration Committee to hold a hearing and vote on the resolution. But they might run up against an obstacle that they hadn't anticipated. A set of regulations proposed in 1996 that would have extended federal protections for staffers to form unions. Congress never adopted them, but now Zoe Lofgren, chair of the House Administration Committee, would like to review those regulations before moving forward. 
For now, the Congressional Workers Union is encouraging staffers to organize and advocate within their own offices to whatever extent they are able. I'm sure we'll see much more about this situation in the coming months, um, and it will give us a great opportunity to take a closer look at labor policy and unions in the context of our current workforce. There are some really interesting laws, especially around federal workers, about unions. Well, I, as a federal employee, um, I don't know of any unions, but that might just be the fact I just don't know and I haven't been... I'm not saying I don't care about my needs, um, but I think I've been <laughs> used to being treated so poorly for so long. I'm like, yeah, man, this is a pretty right. good place to, to work. I'm I'm in a good place now. But yeah, I don't even know of any options to join a union. So I'm going to look into that. I, th- I think there are two. I think there are the National Federation of Federal Employees and the American Feder- Federation of Government Employees. Um, don't you have to pay them, though? Don't you have to pay to be a part? There's a union fees that you have to pay? Unions frequently do have fees associated with them. Mm-hmm. It usually comes down to something around $50 a month. That's an average, so it could obviously vary significantly. Um, it's like having an HOA, but for work. Yeah. yeah. So the union that my mom was part of, though, actually, like, I think it ended up paying for itself, like, mathematically, because that union, my mom was a uh, Bureau of Prisons con- uh, congressional officer. Wow, not right. Corrections officer, a Bureau of Prisons corrections officer. She worked at the uh, um, U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri for 30 years. That is one of the most secure, highest level um, prisoners in the United States, go there. If they need medical help and they are an inmate, they'll probably end up there. Um, At least that was true when she was working there. So it saw people like John Gotti uh, there. Um, And my mom actually talked to him a couple of times. Really interesting stuff. Not the point. The point being that when you are a congressional, golly, when you are a correctional officer working for the Bureau of Prisons, If you show up to work and you park and you get out of your car and something happens, you don't even really have to get out of your car. If you're just there on campus and something happens, you are expected to respond to that. So if a fight breaks out and you need to go to your place to do your thing, they all have, you know, designated roles in case of emergency. You are expected to do that before you got to your desk to clock in. And so... What was happening is it would take, because federal campuses are huge, it would take 15 minutes for my mom to get out of her car and walk to her desk and clock in. And then it would take 15 minutes for her to walk from her desk back to her car every day, 30 minutes a day, that she was technically off the clock, but still expected to respond to work needs. And this was not acceptable to many of the employees, because if they're responding in those moments, it's usually because of something major, like a riot, like an inmate attacking another inmate. There are high stakes at play if you're responding in that time and you're not getting paid for it. So you're risking your life potentially for nothing. And so they, they sued and the, the union 
is who managed and handled that lawsuit. And they ended up getting back pay for everybody who had been forced to go from their car to their desk to clock in and wasn't getting reimbursed for that time. And it was based on the average of how long you had worked there and how long it took the average person to get from their car to their desk, all of that stuff. Um, and it was not an insignificant amount of money. It, it, it turned into a pretty chunk of change that really helped my family actually when she got it. I distinctly remember how happy my mom was and how we were able to, to take care of a lot of basic necessities just because my mom finally got reimbursed for time that she was working and not being paid for. That's an interesting concept that I would like to see applied to the times of COVID. Um, as a federal employee who worked from home for probably about two months before I was back in the office, um, I was working about 18 hours a day and my pay didn't change, but we were, it, no one was saying you need to work like this, but if I didn't, stuff would have fallen yeah. apart completely. So yeah, working about 18 hour days, uh, for a while and not getting paid for them. And I mean, when we have a computer at home and we're expected to computers and phones and we're expected to respond, um, the digital, the digitalization of the workplace has, uh, changed time that people spend at work when they're not actually being paid for it. So I wonder how unions mm -hmm. have been approaching that with working from home and COVID. I imagine there'll be, if there's not an agreement in the works, there will be a lawsuit yeah. to force an agreement at some point. Um, because the federal government is required to pay you for time worked. Ooh, like unless you cannot you're a salaried, volunteer time. Unless you're a salaried employee. But that means your salary, and that is the agreement of a salary, which is baloney. But right. Yeah, I'm salaried, so there's a reason I'm yeah. not going to get paid more. But Yeah, and that's, that's why I think salaries are a racket, and I refuse to ever actually take a salary myself. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. Especially um, if you just take forever to do your work. That's where I would. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah, you do. I mean, I'm just saying like some people would. No. Would. There are benefits to it, but there are also major, major drawbacks. And I don't know if my opinion is is informed by data, but we could find I would that like out. to see the numbers. Yeah. I would like to see the numbers of like how many, how many people on salary actually work 40 hours a week and how many end up working significantly more than 40 hours a week and only get paid for working 40 hours a week. Are either of you um, part of a union? Uh, are either of you part of a union? No. I am not in a unionizationable role. That's a word. Well, I don't I don't <laughs> know if that's true necessarily that? true, Robin, because something I noticed whenever or something I learned whenever I was researching this is that there is pretty much a union for just about every every marketplace out there, every employee employment category out there. So it might be worth looking yeah, into. I mean, it definitely um, would, although I have to say that I am I understand the blessing that I have in my workplace and um, I am salaried and don't work more than 40 hours a week and I do not have to walk a quarter of a mile to the bathroom. And um, so I, I am not sure what benefit unionizing would bring to me and my position at the company that I'm at now, but I do know that there are many places that I could work that it would definitely be beneficial. I find it interesting 
that you view a union as only something to consider if your workplace is negative or as bad, right? Because you automatically started talking about, well, I work in a good place. I don't need it. No, I totally. And I like I will recognize that bias. And as we were working on this episode, I kind of like my understanding of unions has always been they're there to advocate for workers who are not being taken care of well. And that is that's their power. And that's the benefit of them. Um, I think that's because that's how I was. That's how I was educated growing up. My one of my grandpas was a teamster. I worked or I lived in in Minneapolis, which is a really heavily union area. If you do any sort of an industrial job, you are in a union and that's how you bargain for working conditions and benefits that you need for your family. It's never been like an HOA perspective. It's never been like that casual conversation. It's always been an advocacy step. You're being treated poorly. Here's your help. Yeah. Or yeah, here's how you can prevent yourself being treated poorly. And so when there isn't that context, my brain just automatically does not think of the value of being a part of a union. Um, yeah. You know who? There are. I, I was just going to say, I did. I saw that there were other benefits while we were researching it to include things like um preferential consideration or preferential interest rates on credit cards, um, discounts at certain suppliers and stores, stuff like that, that doesn't have anything to do with your job and the performance on it, but are just additional benefits to Hmm. it that can happen. Interesting. As something that was interesting to me um, because I, like you, was kind of raised to believe that unions only existed to allow workers to take advantage of the employer oh, and to not have to work as hard. I guess not like you. You were actually valued to respect them, but as only necessary in, in terms of, of uh, abuse yeah. from the top down. And I was viewed or I was raised in my area that unions actually destroyed businesses, mm-hmm. that they forced them to go out of practice. And uh, because they the workers don't this is this is the undertone of it these were not the words that were explicitly said but the workers are too uneducated too dumb too uh selfish to understand the sacrifices and the difficulties in running a business and they want to demand things that aren't reasonable because if if the employer gave in to their demands then the employer would have to raise their prices on certain Mm -hmm. things, on certain products or services, and then they wouldn't be able to compete, and then they would go out of business. And it's strange to me because I always heard that perspective, but then always read about these non-union industries or these industries who were in, or these employers who were in an industry, but their laborers were non-union, and how it was almost always a race to the bottom with these industries. They would try to pay their workers as little as possible so that they could charge as little as possible for the work or for the product. Um, They would try to skimp out on as many benefits as they could, such as like vacation time or sick leave, that sort of thing. And I never was fully able to square that circle 
and and understand why unions killed employers, but employers without unions killed their employees. Deep. I didn't understand how that works. So, um, in Atlas Shrugged, Anne Rand talks about uh, unions, and her mm. uh, stance was that if you are a good company and you are making good profits because your product is good, you should be able to pay enough money that um, that unions aren't necessary because you're automatically treating your employees well, you're um, paying them well, and they would want to work for you because of how you work. And um, uh, obviously, Enran talks about um, dystopians and utopians, and I think we live more in the dystopian timeline because that's not mm-hmm. how companies think at all. No. Exactly. I, I would agree that in a perfect world, unions wouldn't be necessary because employers would be considering the needs of their employees as they made their business decisions. Right. But businesses don't do that. They consider what they need to keep the doors open. Inside of this capitalist environment, uh, unions have become a necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you know who doesn't have unions? Who's that, Savannah? China. It's true. Which brings us to our good news. <laughs> you said you what? you said you wanted an awkward segue blasted, <laughs> blasted through the <laughs> to the good that news. was okay. brilliant okay <laughs> that i was brilliant. i i appreciate the hustle we'll get to the good news real quick if you uh took something away from this episode if you learned from it if you liked it if you hated it you can let us know at our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. You can find all of our social media links there. You can find a link to our Patreon there if you would like to throw some dollars at us in order to help us actually pay our own expenses in life because we can't form a union between the three of us and demand more from our employers because they don't make any money either. Because we are there. We are there. We. So hit us with that good news. Get it. Aren't you doing it? Yes. The- <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, that's me. <laughs> yes. Hit, hit us with that good news, me. Okay. Gladly, John. Thanks for the handoff. So as you might know, you may be aware that it is Black History what? Month. Yes. We've mentioned it a couple of times. So let's take a minute to uplift a Black person who has made history just this month. On February 13th, Erin Jackson became the first black woman to win an individual Olympic gold medal in speed skating and the first black woman to win an individual event at the Winter Olympics overall when she finished in when she finished first in the women's 500 meter event. She is also the first American woman to medal in an individual speed skating event since 2002. Jackson raced into the spotlight as a speed skater, winning four of the eight 500-meter World Cup races this season and qualifying for the Olympic Games just four months after making a serious commitment to the sport. Before that, she won 12 inline skating world championships. She is also a roller derby player with an engineering degree because apparently people just do everything and kick ass at it, and she's one of them, and I am in awe and very impressed. Yeah. Um, Round of applause. That's yeah. That's incredible. Very excited to hear that. Um, we could spend so much time on the Chinese Winter Olympics this year, the China Games, um, as I've heard certain wow. certain folks call them. Too yeah, much. yeah. Too much. It's, it's pretty rough. Maybe they should have unions. Maybe. 
uh, a woman that we lifted up in our good news section several months ago, Shikari Richardson, making a, a guest appearance <laughs> for a scandal oh. involving uh, Russian doping and a girl not being disqualified for using actual performance-enhancing drugs, and Shikari Richardson going, what the fuck? I mean, that is but, a that is a very legitimate what the fuck. Since we're guys, in a spicy yeah. edit anyway. Yeah, yeah, we already dropped one. As you guys saw on Facebook, I am of the opinion that we should just have um, no rules when it comes to drugs and in any sort of right. uh, sports. Let's see what people can Juice do. Up. Let's go. <laughs> Listen, strongman yeah. is an untested sport uh, <laughs> for a true. reason. And, They're insane. <laughs> and I thoroughly look forward to my opportunity to go stand next to these giant, doped up men and watch them pick up very heavy things and move them around. One of my friends is actually a strong man, um, and he he's so large when he holds a regular twelve ounce ounce Coke can, it looks like one of those mini mini tiny little Coke cans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He is gigantic. Yeah. Like anyway, yeah. Strong men are something. They're a different just, breed. When when we talk about me being pocket sized, really like, like going to a comp and standing next to a dude who's six foot five and four hundred and twenty five pounds is like. I'm pocket sized. That is a big person. That's a big person. Yeah. That's a big, big dude. I'm going to think something and not say it because I don't want to record it, but that, that's nice. <laughs> Please take that out. <laughs> oh, no. I'm leaving that one in, no. too. We can hear your thirst all the way from the other side of the continent, Look, Savannah. Big Somebody get us people. some water. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. are we done with this episode? <laughs> are we done? I'm going to roll outro now. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to us. If you love what we do here, please leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of oh choice because I think we just earned it. <laughs> we will be back to you in one week. A reminder that next week's episode will be completely unresearched. We are just going to talk freeform, so expect more of this great content coming your way. <laughs> So many opinions. Um, Great. Until 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 you hear our sonorous voices in your ear cavities again. Take care of each other. <laughs> <laughs>